We're talking about accountability in times of global crises. And I think that before we start, it would be good to really give a little bit of background of what accountability is. Welcome to Moja Sessions, the podcast powered by Amazingly Africa for Africans and descendants of Black Africa around the globe. In these roundtable discussions, we will be talking numbers, facts, data, and solutions. My name is Linda Fwiting, and I am your host. Accountability can mean different things to different people. The word accountability is mostly used as a synonym and very loosely and interchangeably in terms of if we want to talk about good governance, equity, democracy, efficiency, responsibility, transparency, and finally, integrity. Joining me today is Biko Ayumagaba, who is a revolutionary Pan-Africanist who is currently studying economics at Brown University. Boyd Chokomolefi, who is a policy analyst and is currently working on bridging knowledge gaps between communities and practitioners to create equitable policies. And Chance Kinyangi-Boas, who is an Afropolitan and holds a bachelor's degree in business administration and is an accountant from Brown University. In times of global crises, what are the types of mechanisms that you guys think would be responsible and would be appropriate? All right, thanks a lot. First of all, thanks. I'm very pleased to be here. My name is Biko Idiyumugawa, uh, and I'm very uh, amazed to, uh, to join. In terms of accountability, one of the things that come into my mind, especially when I think about the global pandemic and how much it's going to affect almost everybody is uh, trying to check, to hold the government accountable, but also hold, holding ourselves accountable. What's being asked of people is uh, mostly to change their behaviors and almost like in a very fast way. There is no training that's uh, being conducted. You know, it takes a lot of time. Every time when we are studying, every time we're in a school, every idea that, that goes into your mind, it, it influences how you view the world. And that is essentially trying to influence your behaviors. And so we're asking people to essentially change behaviors in a very quick and reactive way. And so it's not an easy thing. It's not an easy task, which is one of the reasons that's why we're seeing like a lot of people are not staying inside, especially when they're used to not like respecting their governments, for instance, or like not uh, listening to their institutions. So it's, it's a very tough thing. So I think it's, it's, very important that the government are held accountable, but also it's very important that people who happen to be the majority of the population hold themselves accountable. So if they stay, stay inside, you got to stay inside. But also this is not the time to not know. You need to have information about what's going on either in your own country, but also outside, like what's going on in the world. So that is going to help you like hold yourself uh, accountable. Uh, I think that's what I think. Well, thanks a lot for that, Biko. I think you made a a really great point when you said that it's not the time for people not to know. 
if it isn't the government's job to tell you what to do, then who will do it? You will have to take the responsibility to go research, to go figure out what it is that you need to do to keep yourself safe, to keep your family safe, and to keep the people around you safe. So in terms of countries that have done really good, I've looked at the news and a few of the countries that have done a great job. And a great example that I would like to highlight is the Eastern Caribbean island of St. Lucia. It's recorded 100% COVID-19 recovery. Since the authorities had announced that they had a total of about 15 people in the whole of their country that ever had COVID-19, and every single one of them has been free of the virus. And a few of the measures that they thought to implement was a few things that we see here in the United States as well, in terms of schools being closed, national zoning in, term, in order to manage population movement, and also the closure of non-essential businesses, travel restrictions, and the partial shutdown of institutions and issuing a 24-hour curfew. When we see countries that are taking these proactive steps and making sure that their citizens are safe, we should take example in these other Caribbean neighboring countries and fellow Pan-Africanist countries in terms of here is a good situation, here is a way that we can solve this, and Let's learn from them. Yeah, I'll definitely agree with you guys. Uh, uh, again, thanks, Linda, for uh, having me over here. Like accountability from like individual perspective, you know, I think that it's, it's for us like using this platform to provide positive energy, you know, spread positive energy among our own family and maybe our friends. You know, people like uh, back in the village in Africa or in the city too, they, they live in fear. And one of the uh, most ideal situation or one of the challenge that we have to overcome is to overcome fear itself. And then through that, I think that by spreading positive information, especially through our message to our, our family that we in contact communication is uh, a positive uh, way of handling this uh, global crisis. It's, it's important that we continue to do that. So thanks. Bo, what do you think about all of this and everything that we've been talking about so far? It's good to, to be on this uh, podcast. Uh, my name is Butoko Mulifi, and I think that, you know, the Biko and Chance have raised very important issues as well as Linda um, regarding kind of the idea of accountability. And I, and, and I think that it distills to the principle of, of trust and when we're dealing with contexts of like crisis and uncertainty, the starting point of getting any type of work done is really tapping into your centers of trust, what I refer to as centers of trust. So members in your community, you know, civil, uh, civil society organizations, NGOs, people, government institutions that have developed cachet and trust within their respective communities because they are not only capable of distributing credible information information that's seen as credible, but they're also able to connect and consolidate community effort. And I think that what we see in St. Lucia speaks to that. I think when people have trust and trust is operationalized to ensure accountability, we therefore create an atmosphere where people feel okay with either rescinding their liberties or rescinding their privileges for the common good because they understand that it's within whatever is being done is within their best interest. And I think that as African countries or, or like a Pan-African community, one of those things that we need to look at, even where we may think our governments aren't the most trustworthy, 
is how do we engage or how do even these governments that may not have public trust or, or public credibility for the interests of the people engage civic society, engage community partners, engage other stakeholders that do have that cachet to help with managing the crisis and overcoming the crisis. And I think that that's one of the places we need to start in dealing with crisis. So I like what you said there about trust, how a lot of our governments can go about building that trust with um, their populations. You know, there are a lot of countries where um, this securitarian mode of containment hasn't really worked well for the average person. You know, so if there's a, a shopkeeper whose livelihood depends on him going to the shop every single day, and he's asked to close that shop or the farmer whose livelihood depends on going to the farm every single day and selling those uh, fruits or vegetables every single day. If their livelihood depends on something like that, and now they're forced to self-isolate for a span of 90 days or even 45 days, what means does he or she have to protect themselves from not only the COVID-19, but also protect their family? If eating is fundamental and their their rights or their ability to be able to give food to their family is taken away from them. What means do they have uh, moving forward and building that trust with their governments or with their communities? Well, I think this is a, a very important time where we have to understand that things are changing and they're changing very quickly. And the way we respond to it should not be using the tools of our understanding of the past. We just need to look at what exactly, what kind of situation do we have right now? And I'm speaking this as, as, as an African, but also as somebody who is uh, interested in, in whatever is going on uh, on the African continent. We're essentially going back to the basics, essentially saying food, shelter, keeping life alive is very important. I know like that's what every institution claims to be doing, but some institutions are motivated by many different things. So I think it's time to, at least within this COVID-19 COVID uh, time period, to focus on how do we keep as many lives alive as we can. And that means we need to provide food, we need to provide shelter, we need to provide medical assistance that's necessary. That means like a lot of energy and money and, 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 and operations should be directed around those areas. Until the time we are very sure that we have overcame this kind of a, a catastrophe when you think about it. And then from there, we can begin to rebuild because all these things, economy, infrastructure are built by people and people need to be healthy. They need to be secure. And this is one of other thing. People crave for security. They crave for a sense of safety. And, and when they don't have that, that's when uh, what Shane was talking about, fear comes. And fear is a natural instinct. It's not like it's reserved for some people and not the other. And so if that sense of security is not provided by their communities, by the governments, by the institutions that are supposed to protect them, then there is going to be even so much social unrest and that might end up being very hard for governments, but also what institutions to contain uh, this problem. So I think it's very important that they focus on maintaining life and security of people, food security, financial security. All these things are very important for people to survive. Yeah, I like what you said there about all this uh, food security, financial security. But you mentioned something at the beginning. I think that goes to the point of what 
we really want to talk about today is will things ever go back to normal after this and what will the new normal then look like is it going to be shaped by us or are we going to be spectators once again is it going to be a normal that we find a lifestyle that we enjoy in or will it be a, a normal that is back to your nine to five or maybe worse um, than that what do you guys think about that well my my personal opinion on this matter is i think normal is relative i think normal is a relative term particularly given that you know if you had told me in january that i'd be social distancing i would have told you bro like it's just like the avian flu like we're just gonna be back and doing what we're doing you know <laughs> like a couple of months after that right but now social distancing you know what we're living an unusual life that's become normal all of a sudden like now you don't feel crazy for waking up at 2 p.m because you're like i'm at home anyway like for most of the day so like I just have to rework my tasks to work or to do stuff that I need to do within the time that I'm awake, whatever that time period is, right? And I think that for students, right, the, the new normal, for example, is, oh, we're taking online classes, doing this stuff online, submitting things online, all, all these different things. So I think that normal will be relative in the sense that how well will societies be able to adapt to circumstance? and be comfortable in that adaptation right in the sense that now people people are getting into newer routines but i think more 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 kind of uh at a, at a, at a macro level um thinking about what it means for like human resource capital development what it means for you know economic trajectories and development what it means for things like uh, regional security in africa for example right like what what does that look like when this crisis has created an instability already and has in some ways taken away capacity to adequately address those issues. And so do, do we see, for example, extremist groups also dealing with their own COVID crisis and kind of <laughs> prioritizing a whole nother thing, or do we see them really using it as an opportunity to capitalize on instability? So I think that there are a lot of moving parts at the moment. And I think the more proactive and more vigilant people are beginning to think about these issues of kind of social reconstruction in, in terms of how do we prepare like a medical field that's being decimated by COVID-19. Uh, we have doctors, nurses and other healthcare practitioners experience like also being, you know, falling victim to this country losing capacity as well because they're better offers elsewhere. So I think the, the crux of it becomes how do we proactively plan for a new normal and a new type of society like where, where we're able to really think about these new adjusted roles like i had to do a virtual career fair today and i'm in like four or five different chat rooms talking to recruiters about oh like i'm trying to do this i'm trying to do that um you can't read body language all you're going off of is someone typing on the keyboard and and so like what what then becomes of this new type of society that that forms out of this and i think we have to be proactive in thinking about how do we guide our societies to this new normal but also kind of rejuvenate some of the quote unquote you know golden 
values and principles of, of pre-COVID-19 you know, social spaces. Yeah, you've made a lot of great points there. Um, I think I want to give Chance the ability to respond to that. Yeah, so there's really a lot of points that you guys discussed, but I think that remaining on a full uh, op- uh, op- op- optimistic is that definitely this crisis is still going. I think we haven't seen its peak in Africa. I think it's, st- it's still in the early stage, so we don't really know how much it will impact at the local level, like the farmer, the people who are producing food for this the people in the city. So I think that depends on how this crisis get to the village and what impact, you know, it, it will uh, leave, how much uh, ravage economically is going to leave there. So, but I'm still optimistic. I believe that every single time we have gone through crisis, we have come out very strong. And the great message out of this is that we definitely need to, fo- it actually shows the level of how most of our, our governments lack a good healthcare system. And I think that this is the time where we can use all the lessons we have learned and go back to not just normal, but building a very robust healthcare system, not just for the city people, but also for the village, the farmer, the, the people who don't have access to dirty things that we take for granted, like water and soap and, you know, electricity. These are some of the most luxurious for the majority of African people who still live in the villages. So definitely we'll get to normal, but I, I would say that we actually need to look beyond normal and learn, uh, like we have learned in cases like Rwanda, where you have the actual, after a huge crisis, they've been able to come out of it and become a a, a leader, a a model for other African countries. Yeah, I think you're definitely right about that. It's definitely time. I think we definitely see more of a necessity for leaders to govern with some form of um, understanding and compassion for their people, to really see them for who they are, what their needs are, what it is that they really need, and not just in terms of financially or healthcare, but also maybe mentally, maybe all these other aspects, all of these other things that come along with such, with a crisis of such a, a, a large, in, uh, such a large scale. So I really think that it's also a time where it's a chance for a radical change of direction, not only from our leaders but from us. So I would like to give you guys the time to respond to to that. Yeah, I want to speak to that, I think, because I think it's very important and uh, we should, I can't stress it enough that actually, I think it was Bo who said the other day that normal for black people is not good. You know, like it's, it's normal for black people is kind of hell, you know, in a, in a way that we live in, in the world and we're seeing the consequences right now. There is a lot of evidence that African-Americans in, in America, the ones who are being affected, by this crisis, there is a lot of evidence that the communities that have been marginalized economically and otherwise that are, are taking the heavy bait. And so uh, when we speak about an opportunity that is opening up to actually restructure or renegotiate our relationships with our government, with our communities, with uh, uh, the people that we hold dear to one another, this is the right kind of time. And I want to say, so we have two things that are happening simultaneously. We have the, the coronavirus that's taking a lot of people, about 125,000 people have died so far. 
and there is predictions that a lot of people are going to die. So it's very important that we keep an eye on that. At the same time, there is also another thing that's happening, which is an economic meltdown. It's not just a crisis. It's like the economy is shutting down in many different capacities. The people were predicting, as I was watching, like some predictions by the, the Goldman Sachs, I think that the economy is going to reduce in the upcoming period by 24%. This is something that they've never seen even during the economic crisis of 1930s. So again, what that means, like Bo was saying, it boils down to the trust. When these systems of trust shut down, when people all of a sudden are beginning to, to realize that there, is, there was a lot of things that they were holding onto that keep them moving through life, but they realize that those things are not necessarily enough. And so that kind of a, a breakup is what's going to be renegotiated. And I would hope uh, towards the end that Africans realize that this is a great uh, opportunity politically, economically, and otherwise to change the way things are being done in, in terms of accountability, but also like in terms of how we conduct our lives in our countries and, and spaces. Thanks a lot for that comment, Biko. I think Bo wanted to respond to that. Yes. Um, those are excellent points, actually, by, by both yourself and Linda and Chance. I think going forward, one thing that we've witnessed globally has been a systematic failure of institutions and processes. Like we, New York has the one of the biggest, most robust healthcare systems in the world. And we've seen New York become almost, get into almost like a fetal position because they're like, we just don't have the capacity to deal with this. And we've seen from an executive level as well, there's a very laissez-faire type attitude towards like this idea of like the scope of the crisis. I mean, in many respects, parliaments in, in, in African countries where people were huddling and, you know, and in close groups when they're supposed to be social distancing, so much so that the doctors themselves had to be like, yo guys, social distancing. You've seen this kind of repetitive extension of the, the lockdown Michigan just extended their lockdown to May 15th. And so we've seen a systematic failure of processes and institutions. And that leads more so to this point that you brought up, Biko, of these systems of trust and these chains that connect the people and the institutions and the process. And what I think the crisis has indicated to us is that clearly in this game of life and, and politics and policy, there are, there are winners and losers. And the losers typically look a certain way, live in a certain type of life, live in a certain type of environment exists in certain type of circumstances. This is an opportunity to address these inequities in terms of thinking about how do we look at Detroit as a city and the projections in Detroit, even though De Detroit is a highly disconnected city, it, it's a paradox of a city because it's so, it's so spread out, but it is so robbed of resources in that spread that people have to congregate to get access to resources. Right. So you have the spread city that has to congregate to get access to resources. And that shows like almost a double layeredness of inequity in such spaces. And so I think what we need to begin to interrogate at all levels is the, the, the connections between processes, institutions and 
people who are being served by these you know processes and institutions because if we are more intently looking at how the beneficiation processes work we can truly practice accountability because we'd have clear goals clear mandates clear chains of responsibility clear mechanisms of response and clear processes of adjudication when processes and then and people fail and i think that what we are seeing now as this crisis unfolds is this lack of accountability on people, on institutions, on processes, on systems. Because ultimately, if there was a form of accountability, the protesters in Michigan, who essentially created a health risk uh, by, by going to, one, blocking off uh, the state capital and blocking off people from going to hospitals and getting access, uh, but also creating this kind of potential health explosion if people contract the COVID-19 at this at these rallies. And what that means is you're now effectively endangering your families, the people proximal to your families, and creating a whole other set of crises. When you think about, you know, protests uh, by minorities have typically had a response of violence from the government, which we didn't see with this particular group of protests because they're white. And that in of itself shows the dichotomous nature of the way in which people exist and how they express their disconnection from you know, processes and institutions. And then how the processes and institutions themselves respond to these different types of people. And I think that this is that opportunity, like you're saying, to renegotiate these relationships and really reaffirm you know, a, a renewed sense of repurposing these relationships. Um, for, for for equal benefit. Yeah, Bo, so you're, you basically brought us to the final part of our argument today with a title, Accountability in Times of Global Crises. And I really want to finish off with, that, with the question and open the question of what now? You know, what can we do now? And I think you've started touching a little bit about on that, talking about processes and, you know, standards of operating procedures, systems that really would... Um, keep us not only accountable, but also keep us proactive so that instead of us always reacting and letting things happen to us, we really are able to prevent things from happening. So I'll let you guys um, give your final thoughts. On uh, I, uh, I can go ahead. Uh, one last thing I wanted to add to what Bo was mentioning is that, is that we actually need some trustworthy sources information. This is critical. And this can also save lives. And this is a level of accountability as well, where we expect the leaders in the government to be able to provide information that can save lives, not necessarily to their own group, but also to the lower level of, at the, at the lowest level, to the individual. There's a saying also that I'm aware where, you know, you, we don't really need to ask what the government can do for us but what we can do for our government. And this is the time where we can actually take step forward to actually request the government to do what we the people deem to be necessary in order to prevent future global crisis. There's a lot of steps that have been taken by certain individuals, especially in the music industry where I'm always uh, involved, uh, where you have a, a live concert that I uh, happening on Instagram, that are happening on Facebook, for uh, to raise funds for uh, to support musicians who live on on this music, going to live shows and play live shows at a local level. Uh, so that's 
that's one of the example where people are making head away. And we, it's important that the government can see that and take that as an opportunity to also promote initiative that the farmers, you know, can learn how to make masks, like promote this idea where the farmers still need to go to the farm, but can they provide masks that can be made at a very, very low, low cost? That's my final point, I would say. Well, the last thing I would say, uh, like we mentioned, this is an opportunity to uh, rethink how we could uh, organize our societies. I think they asked, once they asked, once asked uh, Kwame Ture, he was 52 years old, about to die. And they were like, you're about to leave this earth. What, what kind of like advice you can give to, to, to Africans? And he, he says, organize, organize, organize. So I would say to a lot of Africans uh, to find a way to organize and change things that are happening. And what that means practically is you have to be part of some type of movement, some type of group that are trying to, uh, number one, discuss about this thing, but also try to find out what to do. I think the last thing that I would say, and this is very important, when Engels and Marx are writing the, the, their stuff, they're always waiting and expecting for like some, some type of a shock. And when that shock happens, that means there is a need. People start to listen. They become responsive to uh, all different kinds of messages. So there, there is a, that message need for a message of hope, a message of like continuity, because people, that's, that's what I think for the most part, people want to see that continuity and say, okay, things are going to continue to happen. And I can, again, believe in my future. I can believe that I can go into uh, this or do that and live my life until the time I leave. So that is some of the things we need we need to focus on uh, not just the government but also people and and i hope uh, the la for the last thing africans are learning how much none of these uh, uh, big countries care about africans and and their livelihood it's on africans to change and renegotiate these contracts and i don't think there is any perfect time to do that than this time this is the time we need to change things Thanks for those comments, Biko. Bo, do you have any last comments before we close up? My comments really uh, center around two themes. I think the first theme is that we have to be, you know, at a point where we are the custodians of our own future and the future of, you know, those, you know, our descendants, so to speak. It's imperative that, you know, where we feel let down and shortchanged by institutions, uh, by government, by other stakeholders, that we use it as an opportunity to, to you know, to harness our self-determination and allow ourselves to really think about the best ways to protect ourselves. That's one. The second part for me, I think that, and that's very crucial, is that, is that those who have the capacity must find ways of empowering and passing on that capacity to others um, in terms of availability of information or sharing that with people in terms of the opportunity to discuss the big issues and the big questions and creating accessibility to not only ways to, you know, to, to get to information, to get help in terms of resources for food, for health, for safety, for shelter, and, and really thinking about how do we create value through our capacity in ways that are meaningful so that those who don't have the luxury that some of us may have in terms of finding the time to get information there, do this, do that, use our privilege um, in ways that edify and add value 
you know, to other people within our space. Yeah. Oh my gosh. You guys have touched upon so many great points. I don't even know how to close this up, but from what I hear, Bo and everybody else, you guys are basically saying to whom much is given, much is expected as well. And we're not just talking about leaders in high office positions. We're talking about young Africans who might be leaders in their own white, in their communities without even knowing. I think one of you mentioned that earlier, it's in the most trying times really that new innovations come up, new orientations, and and it's during that time that we should be really exploring these lasting solutions that are going to be able to make our lives better, improve improve our lives, and also the fate of Black civilization in general. So on that note, I want to say thank you to everybody. Thank you, Pico. Thank you, Bo. Thank you, Chan, for taking this time. You know, you could have been doing a lot of other things, but you decided to be here. And we're going to finish off by thanking the listeners for following us and for being here on the start of an incredible journey. And uh, stay tuned for more episodes, for more great gems coming on your way. 